The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, verse 3. Listen to God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's holy word for us. The turn of a new year always creates a sensation, I would say, for most of us, that our lives are kind of restarting. We have a clean page to write on, very literally, in the case of your kitchen calendar or daytimer book or on your iPhone, wherever you keep your schedule. There's not so much there yet. And on the one hand, you're hearing people reprise all the events of 2016. I've already listened to several of those lists be worked through by news reporters, and I said to myself, did all that happen last year? And it makes you a little fearful as to what is going to be written on those clean pages of a new year. But while you're full of willpower and you're looking at those clean pages and saying, Ah, I've got some new goals. I'll lose 20 pounds. I'll exercise an hour and a half every day. I'll finish my novel. I'll reorganize all my closets. I'll memorize the book of Romans. And that's just what I'll do in the month of January. I say good fortune to you as you pursue that because I would think you know pretty well you will give up on some of those goals, if not most of them, before January is very old. That's the kind of people we are. We have great ambitions for change and improvement, but we lack in the ability to have our own strength to fulfill these things that we wish we would do. Well, this morning, our text from 1 Peter 1, 22 to 2, 3, I think offers us something better than resolutions or ideas that we will pump ourselves up and get our ambitions going and be different people. It offers us not resolutions that we will fail in, but 
a whole new life bestowed on us by the new birth of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. The apostle speaks of a change indeed in you, but it's a change sponsored by the supernatural working of God, the Holy Spirit, and a transformation that does not depend on our weak will to carry it out. Now, let me just remind you of a couple things. We've been away from this text for a bit. We remembered that already in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he began writing about the fact that we were chosen by God from before time. We are God's elect exiles, we were called. We might be vagabonds in this world, and these people he was writing to were scattered all over the northern part of the Roman Empire, probably feeling a little disenfranchised, far from fellowship with uh, other good Christians, and maybe lacking guidance, lacking a sense that they really belong to Christ. And so Peter writes to them and reminds them that they were the elect of God, chosen of God, according to his foreknowledge and the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ. And let me remind you, we'll see this in just a minute. The word obedience can also mean faith, and it does seem to carry a lot of that meaning here in in this book. And so Peter called for these people to live lives of holiness devoted to God in reverential respect for God in light of the great price that was paid for them and what the precious blood of Christ that he talks about in 119. And so now we come to a kind of turning point. It may be a quiet turning point, but it's a definite one because he has not up until now explained or thought with them very much about their interrelationships with other Christians. It was more just, who are you before God? But a new factor in verse 22 is the introduction of the fact that you are to love other brothers and sisters. There's a social tie, a fellowship tie with other Christians who share your same beliefs. And the call is for you to live in relation to them in a self-denying love, an act of service that is truthful and sincere and authentic, not manipulative, not trying to get advantage over them or, or take advantage of them like the world so often does, but a, a new relationship that comes from a pure heart cleansed by Christ is what is spoken about here. Now, first of all, today I would just take you to something pretty basic, but basics are a good place to begin in a new year, I think. I would want you to see that this text is emphasizing again, as we've already heard in this chapter, the subject of the new birth, being born again by the power of God. Verses 22 and 23 reveal it. When the gospel is believed, it really does begin a new life in you. Peter's terminology might throw you a little bit when he says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. He could just as well have said, now that you have believed in Christ for a new birth. For that's what he meant. Now that this has happened to you, you've believed the truth, obeyed the truth, you have a sincere love for your brothers, take that love and love one another deeply from the heart since you have been born again. 
Purifying your souls by obedience to the truth is another way to say born again. And he has said that in this, uh, in this chapter, in this book already. We've seen it earlier in chapter 1. We need to be reminded of this. We are creatures of grace. God has given us a new birth. We are not the same old people that we were at our birth into this world. If we know Christ, if we trust in Christ, grace has sponsored a new birth in us. And we've got to be reminded that that new birth isn't just a figure of speech. It isn't just something that maybe happened in your case a long time ago. In my case, it is a long time ago, 50 I guess closer to 60 years. I counted myself as coming to Christ at the age of eight, so I'm coming up on my 60th birthday as a Christian, being born anew by the Spirit of God. It's good for me to be reminded of that. And it's not just, you know, a theological abstract term. It's something that's very real in my life. I remember how real it was for me to observe my own father being born again when he was about 39 and I was 12. I was old enough, perceptive enough, and already a Christian myself before my dad that I saw my dad's life change before my eyes, his habits, his priorities, his love for the Scripture and love for worship and so on. And I said, my dad has been born again. I've seen it happen. God is working to sculpt a new creation. You know, I think some, some of you who don't have perhaps a turnaround like my dad's already when he was already an adult, you who come and you give your testimony on joining the church and say, Pastor, elders, I just, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. I can't remember when I didn't know Christ. And you feel sort of like that's inferior. You think we're going to to question that you're not really born again because you can't say on August 2nd, 1962, this happened or something. No, that's a wonderful testimony to be able to say, I can't remember when I didn't. The, the moment of my new birth doesn't stick out for me, but I know that I was born again. Otherwise, my heart would not have been changed and I would not adore and love Christ the way I do. You don't have to be swept away by a tidal wave of emotion or or a great 180-degree life change to say, I'm born again. But you do need to know that that's what makes you a Christian. The birth of the Spirit of God in your heart and mind and soul is what makes you a Christian. And it is that then, that new birth that gives, propels everything else, motivates everything else. What does it motivate? It motivates different relationships. For one thing, John 13, 35 says, by this... All men will know that you are my disciples. What follows? That you love one another. A new love follows that new birth. 1 John 3.14 says a similar way. Hereby we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Literally, spiritual birth going from death to life. How do we recognize it? because now we love the people of God. So I just remind you that what Peter's talking about here is premised on, founded on, the new birth of the Holy Spirit that is in every Christian. Well, secondly then, when this love of God in Christ has taken up residency within us by a new birth, we have this command, love each other deeply from your hearts. 
a new life in Christ will be marked by self-denying love and sacrifice towards other people, beginning at the church and working outward. I once read a passage from a man who was very critical of Christianity, and one short paragraph, several sentences that he wrote uh, stuck with me, and I made note of it and saved it. This skeptic condemned Christianity broadly, and here's what he wrote. I quote him. He said, I can find more warmth of comradeship, more true concern for my own well-being in the company of my Saturday night drinking companions at the neighborhood tavern than I will ever expect to find at any church. Until that so-called fellowship of a Christian congregation can match the fellowship I have at the tavern, why should I seek out a group of persons who will condescendingly view me as their project for moral and spiritual reformation, but will never love me? Now, maybe those last words especially should grab our attention and say, why is it this man has the impression that people at a church will never love him? All we'll do is judge him or, or look down our noses at him. Quite possibly he had some kind of a very bad experience, and he was burned by contact with Christians, and that really did happen. I have a sense that in many cases people might have written a paragraph like that based more on their supposition of how a church would greet them than on any actual experience of it. They think that they have to be good people in order for the church to be ready to embrace them or welcome them. And so they turn to companions who ask nothing of them morally but just to sit together at the bar and swill the alcohol and call that fellowship. I would desire a much higher grade of fellowship than that, personally. I'm sad that this man never understood what we read in the Scripture that some first-century Romans did, pagans themselves, not believers, as they looked on the early Christians living selflessly towards each other, sharing their resources, sharing food, helping each other out, and lived in such a way that they stood out from the interactions of pagans in that society so that Romans looked at the early Christians and said, Behold, look, these people love each other. And they just thought that was amazing. Why would they love each other? What rationale, what reason did they have to share already scarce resources or help each other? They stood out in a pagan society. I want to tell you as pastor... There are times, certainly every pastor understands discouragement at various times with his congregation. I must tell you, I don't have a lot of it. You people bless me, and I'm saying this very sincerely. I'm the, I don't have an awful lot of discouragement with being pastor of this church because any time that I might see something going on, here's a person over here who's really struggling, here's somebody that just isn't making progress, here's something that we've invested a lot in and doesn't seem to have shown return. On the other hand, all over the place, I am flooded. I, I have this catbird, I call it the catbird seat. Okay, I can look you all in the face on Sunday morning. And more than that, I can look into your lives, whether I'm facing you or not, because I know more about more of you than any of you do. That's just a fact. I, I sit in your membership interviews. I know 
what's happening largely in the counseling rooms and so on. And I see both the bad and the good. And there's so much, honestly, folks, wonderful interaction, selfless interaction by folks in this congregation. So much to be praised. I, I probably have to check myself in not going on and praising you too long or you'll get swelled heads. But honestly, folks in this church who in retirement are out there doing things in the community, in disadvantaged neighborhoods, with refugees, with others, offering themselves, doing something uncomfortable, something expensive, something that takes up what could be their leisure time that they could say, oh, I'm retired, I've earned this, I I need time to myself. Young couples sharing themselves, sharing lives. I see so many things of self-denying service that that testimony of that gentleman about his tavern mates having the quality fellowship that the church wouldn't have is just proven absolutely false to me time after time after time. God bless you for being a... I want to say this to you as we open this year together. God bless you for being a congregation that selflessly, generously serves one another and our community in so many ways. Maybe that doesn't apply to every single person who hears me, but it applies to an awful lot of you, and I thank God for it. Just as any biological family, let's say you have a family living in a very small home that's all they can afford, one bathroom, six kids, mom and dad, and six of the kids are girls. Uh, Well, you get the picture. Uh, You know, you learn to adjust, you learn to to rub up against one another and adapt and say, okay, it's my turn, but now it's your turn. And and being in a body, being in a fellowship of any kind, whether it's a, a biological family or a church, helps you to grow because you have to adjust to other people. You have to give way to other people. The church is like that. If you're not part of the church, you're not gaining what you could gain from being involved with other lives. What makes us one? It's not biology. We weren't born of the same physical parents. In fact, in many cases, in any given church, ours included, we are people as disparate and different as you could possibly imagine. We have folks that would be from, you know, survival-level economic situations to folks who would be very, very comfortable, folks with a tremendous amount of education. We have a lot of doctorates in this congregation, medical and other kinds. We have folks who are very gifted, very skilled. My wife and I were watching the movie, uh, is it called Sully? The movie about the man landing the plane, you know, in the Hudson River a while back. And I was thinking, gee, we have half a dozen men in our church who've flown planes. Like I was, I was marveling at the skill of somebody that could bring an airplane in on the Hudson River. And I thought, well, we've got men in our congregation, multiples who do that or have done that in the past. The skills that we share, the things that we put together that, that emerges as a talented, amazing group of people, but still people who aren't there saying, look at me, I'm great. They're there saying, what can I do for you? How can I pray for you? How can I come alongside you in a burden? We have people in this church, you know, there are those who've experienced us, and maybe I'll get a note from somebody and say, Well, I heard what you said on Sunday, Pastor, but that hasn't been my experience of Westminster. Well, guess what? There probably are such people 
who think we're a cold bunch of snobs. I don't know. Maybe somehow we missed your signals. Maybe we just didn't pick up on what we should have to to come alongside and help you. But I know that there are people who use their talents, their wealth, their time to selflessly share in the way that Peter's talking about here. Authentically, from a pure heart, since they've been born again, and not with all the worldly motives of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You know what the world argues should be our goal? You, you hear this word all the time in the social media, the TV, the, the newspapers. We should have tolerance. That's the great model today. We just have to tolerate one another. Even even means toler- tolerating one another's immorality in many cases. Tolerance. It's exalted to a level that it certainly is not exalted within the Bible. The Bible talks about something higher and better than that. It talks about Christians investing in others' lives. And here's a particularly striking phrase from Paul in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. This came to my life as a teenager for the first time when I was a summer camp counselor and my assigned, we, we got randomly assigned jobs that the counselor, you know, this camp didn't have a very high-priced staff. So the counselors, besides having a cabin of kids, got some kind of a maintenance job every week, and you, you drew lots for it. Cleaning the latrines was one of the jobs. And these were latrines, okay, a board with holes in them over a hole in the ground. Smelled bad, and you didn't want to do it, but somebody had to clean them every day. I drew the job of cleaning the latrines three weeks in a row. And by the third week, I was very resentful. And guess what the camp memory verse happened to be that third week? I'll read it to you. Philippians 2, 3 and following. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others to be better than yourselves. For me at 17, that was like a lightning bolt because I honestly, I considered myself better than everybody for whom I was cleaning the latrine. And God was saying, who do you think you are? Every camper here ought to be considered by you to be better not not equal to yourself. You notice that the Bible doesn't let us get away with Consider others to be equal to yourself. It said consider others to be better. That's the hard part of it, isn't it? And we say, our natural self says, what? I thought I was the best person in the whole world. I thought I was the person God smiled upon the most. Better than myself? I've spent my lifetime from 17 to 67 trying to figure out what that means and having God deal with me about what that means. And his spiritual rebirth, showing me that I'm an object of his pity and mercy and grace, helps me discover it, but I haven't learned it all yet. You see, true Christianity is not defined simply by your giving assent to a particular creed. We used the Apostles' Creed this morning. We've used the Nicene Creed in December And maybe you think, okay, if I can learn that creed and check off as we go through the different phrases, 
believe that, believe that, believe that, believe that. Okay, I believe the whole creed. I must be a Christian. Well, the Scripture says certainly your doctrine has to be right, your belief has to be right, or you were not born again in the first place. But once you are born again and you check off the doctrine, you will pass the test in costly caring and serving and loving and communicating to other people who you have to regard as better than yourself because Jesus died for them just as he died for you. Now, a third point briefly today is this, because Peter also includes this. After he reminds us that we're born from above, if we really know Christ, that a new life in Christ is marked by self-denying love, the third thing he says here is that that self-denying love needs to be fed. It needs to be supernaturally supplied, because it's not going to come from just our own resources. So where is it going to come from? New life in Christ grows by feeding on God's Word. And Peter uses two different images, the image of a seed and the image of milk here. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring Word of God. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he compares that word to something else, to pure spiritual milk that we would feed on as we grow up in our salvation. In other words, the impetus, the motive, the strength that's going to cause this self-denying love to go forward is not from within us, just as our new birth wasn't from within us. We don't have it in us that will allow us to continue this self-denying love. We need God to supply the motivation and the inspiration and the direction for such a love. Where will it come from? From the Word of God. Why is, why is it that the major occupation of this congregation during the week in all the different groups that meet is somehow or other digging into the Word of God? You know, you might say, well, you don't have too many groups that are just there to have fun. Uh, well, you can come here on a certain night of the week and play volleyball. That's, I don't think there's any scriptural uh, study going on there, but for the most part, we have a youth group, we have children's groups, we have adult group, men's groups, women's groups, home fellowships. What are all these people doing? Studying the Word of God. Why are we studying the Word of God? Because we need to feed on it. We need to feed on it to carry our discipleship forward. God's Word, it says here, Peter says, is not like natural seed that causes grass to just spring up and then, bloop, you know, that's the kind of seed I have in my front lawn, by the way. It it grows up, it looks pretty good through May, June comes, it gets hot, bloop, it's gone. The lawn's all brown. Well, Peter's saying that's not what God's Word is like. It's like seed that feeds you so you stay green and you keep growing and you stay healthy. It's like milk that you drink that you have to taste over and over again, not just once, for it to feed your body and your cells so that you'll be healthy. The new life in Christ grows by feeding on God's Word. Now, these are simple precepts I've given you today. But isn't perhaps the first day of a new year a good time to just be reminded of some simple things? We've been born by a new birth. 
We're called to self-denying love, and that self-denying love is fed by a continual diet of the Word of God. Here's the danger. The danger is you'll be swept along with the world on January 1st to say, aha, good day, whether I write it down or not, mentally, here are my resolutions. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And again, how long will you do it? Two weeks? Probably not. Two months? Probably not. Two years? Almost certainly not. Resolutions won't carry you forward. The law won't carry you forward. The law challenges and shows us what our sin is and what our weakness is, but it does not supply or motivate what we need to be godlike. What we need is not resolutions. We need to be mindful of our new life, what it calls us to, and how it is fed. Because then we're not going on a path of religion, you see. Religion says, I will imitate the historical man Jesus. I will do my best job to be like Jesus. A man wrote a book, oh, a good hundred years ago now, called In His Steps, Charles Sheldon. And there was a great, a great revolution that went on in his town, in this fictional account, of a town that the people of a church started saying, what would Jesus do? And they tried to do what Jesus would do. Well, that's good, but it's a basis of law, not a basis of grace. It's a way of religion, not a way of a new life. If you're saying, I will clean up my act, and if I really do a good job, maybe God will love me better this year than he loved me last year. Oh, I pity you if that's where you're coming from. Don't settle for that flimsy religion of New Year's resolutions that's all about you and your effort. Instead of that, the grace of God, a new birth in Jesus Christ, when you have surrendered to him and given him your life in faith, it says something completely different. It says, because my Savior died and rose, I am his new creation. He has begun a good work in me, and he surely will carry his work on to completion in that final day. Christ dwells in me by his Spirit, so I need to bow before him and tell him my hunger and my need. Lord, feed me, supply me with all that I need to do what you challenge for me to do, because I am nothing and I cannot do it without you. Not new resolutions, folks. A new life. In 2017, May you know the difference. May you rejoice in a God who uses even you to do great things, to serve and show his love and show his truth to people around you. God be praised. Father, I ask that you, having shown us our failings and faults by the law, would turn us to grace would show us that your supply for our every need is there as we have been given rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Again, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that this new life is his life lived in us. We pray, O God, that some great things would come to pass, things that we don't even conceive that you might be doing, 
but you have already designed to do through us and through our yieldedness to you and trust in you. Even in this year of 2017, we praise you for your plans for us and your supply of our need. In Jesus' name, amen.